to everyone in the venue this morning and those watching online. My name is Adrian, and uh, good to be with you today. And this morning, what we're going to do is, is three things I'd like to accomplish with you in today's message. Uh, first, I think most importantly, I want to just kind of quiet our hearts, take a moment to pray and have a moment of silence, and then uh, prepare ourselves as we listen to today's message. Uh, it's an anxious time, isn't it? Maybe you had a difficult week. Our week was kind of hard. I'm sure it's true for many people here in the auditorium and those watching online as well. And so we just want to pause and quiet ourselves and remember the character of God. Uh, Secondly, what we want to do here this morning is to try to explain a really complex and confusing passage in 1 Peter chapter 3, verses 18 to 22. If you want to turn there right now, you can certainly do that in the back of your Bible. 1 Peter chapter 3, verses 18 to 22 is where we'll start, and then we'll go from there into chapter 4, um, and the first few verses in chapter 4. And then last, what I want to do, uh, number 3, is to uh, communicate some application from this passage to every person in this room, every person in the venue, every person watching online, because though this first part that we'll read is really kind of confusing, the second part that we'll read has got incredible applications for all of us today. So I hope you'll stay with me for that. Let's begin with a word of prayer as we trust ourselves to our good God. Oh, Father, we're thankful to be together here this morning. We take a moment of silence to remember you. Holy Spirit, you are the unseen presence in this room. And we invite your ministry to our lives. Father, thank you that you are all-powerful and you are all-knowing. You are aware of everything that we are going through today. The Bible says that you know the beginning from the end. Therefore, you are well aware of everything that we're dealing with right now. The Bible says you are strong and we are weak. Therefore, we can trust you to be strong in our weakness today. Father, we invite your love through Jesus Christ to be front and center in our minds as we seek to grow in the love of God, as we seek to grow in the holiness of God even this morning, please teach us. I ask God that we would yield to your spirit and that we would just long to do your will today. We would long to listen to your scriptures. It's certainly nothing about what I have to say. It's about what you have to say. And so, Father, we make space right now in our lives here from you, our living God. Thank you, Father, for receiving our prayers. We give ourselves to you now in Christ's name. Amen. Well, we're living in a really simple time, are we not? And so as providence would have it, we are turning to, I think, perhaps the most confusing passage in the New Testament. Happy Sunday. First <laughs> uh, Peter chapter three, verses eighteen to twenty-two. It may not be the most confusing section of the New Testament, but it's certainly one of the most confusing sections. Um, let me read it here this morning, and uh, we'll try to explain it, and then uh, we'll move on to application as well. Starting in verse eighteen, it says, "For Christ also suffered once for sins, the righteous one, that's Jesus for." The unrighteous, that's us, we're the unrighteous, to bring you to God. 
He did this to bring you to God. He was put to death in the body, but made alive in the spirit. After being made alive, he went and made proclamation to the imprisoned spirit. To those who were disobedient long ago, when God waited patiently in the days of Noah while the ark was being built. He made only a few people, eight in all, were saved through water, and this water symbolized baptism that now saves you also, not the removal of dirt from the body, but the pledge, the pledge of a clear conscience for God. It saves you by the resurrection of Jesus Christ, who has gone into heaven and is at God's right hand with angels and authorities and powers in submission to him. You got a lot? Okay, I think I'm going to ask Pastor Brian to explain it for us this morning. Brian, would you just come up now? Okay. I guess it's me. <laughs> this is a really hard to figure out passage. In fact, as I was studying last week, I remember studying this passage well way back in seminary a number of years ago as well. When I studied it deeply back in, sem- in seminary, my mind was spinning, and when I studied it again last week, my mind remained spinning. In fact, there are at least five uh, very reasonable, conservative, and biblical explanations of what exactly Peter is talking about in this passage. This is one of those passages that you can agree to disagree. This is one of those passages that I will give you my explanation of it. I'm not going to go through all five. I'm just going to give you my one explanation of it. But even as I give it to you, I hold it very loosely. Who knows that there are some things in life that you hold tightly and other things in life you hold loosely? You know that? I pray that you know that. If you hold everything like this, you're going to be constantly stressed. If you hold everything like this, you're going to be constantly arguing with people. There's certain things that we hold loosely in life. There's certain political or cultural and even theological convictions that you are wise to hold loosely. And then there's others that we hold with gospel-type conviction. This would be one that we hold loosely, okay? I, I, I think that said, what Peter is talking about here is Jesus resurrected from the grave, and when he was resurrected, after he won the victory over Satan and over death and over the grave, he proclaimed his resurrection to a number of spirits. And the spirits were fallen angels. And he's referring to fallen angels that go all the way back to Genesis chapter 6 at the time of Noah. And what he's talking about here, I believe, is that time when God chooses to flood the earth as a judgment against humanity and also against these fallen spirits, angels, who rebel against the will of God. Now, you may or may may or may not know this, but there's a spiritual battle going on. Did you realize that? There's, a, there's good angels, and there's bad spirits, bad angels called demons. And some of the bad spirits, some of the demons are in prison, Peter says here, which is code word for they're held captive, which is code word for they're in hell. And I think what this is saying is at his resurrection, Jesus preached final victory from the resurrection over these rebellious spirits that, using their free will, rebelled against God. And God says, finally, after the resurrection, you are banished ultimately from 
fellowship with God. In the midst of all this, he is referring to Genesis chapter 6, in which um, spirits had rebelled, and there was so much rebellion in the land between humans and the angel world, the spiritual world, that God said he grieved even creating humanity. You know that? Genesis, Genesis 6 says that there is so much wickedness in the world, far more than we experience today, that God grieved even creating humanity. And as he was grieving, after a long, long time, eventually God's patience ran out. Did you know that one day God's patience will run out? Did you know that? For all of us, one day God's patience will run out. And eventually God's patience ran out in that day, and so he brought upon this one-time judgment over the world called the flood. And in that flood, only eight souls were saved. And Jesus proclaiming victory to the Spirit, even as Peter is referencing these eight souls that were saved, in the midst of the ark, that was Noah and his wife, their three sons and their three wives. Eight souls full while were saved. And what Peter is trying to do here, actually, is give this encouragement to the Christians living in 62 AD in Northwest Asia, that though Noah's family was this minuscule minority, God saved this remnant through the flood. And so also you in 62, 63 AD, though you are a minuscule minority of followers of Christ, God will save you through the waters of baptism, not so much the baptism saves you, but what you say when you are baptized, that's what saves you. That your belief in the cross and the resurrection of Christ, when you come into the baptismal tank, you say, I identify with Jesus both for today and for all of eternity. And then that pledge, that pledge, that promise above before God that I am now a follower of Christ, that saves you, whether you are in the majority of the population or the minority, you are saved in that. And so Peter's drawing this analogy that much as God saved this very small number of people, eight, through the waters and through the ark, so also he's trying to encourage this first century audience, though you are a minuscule minority, you likewise are saved as you confess Christ and then you pledge it before believers and unbelievers when you come to water baptism. You got all that? Okay. That's my best understanding of what's being said here. I could be wrong. I hold it like this. Either way, you've got to know, um, Peter's not going to quiz you on that when you approach the pearly gates. Okay? What he's really talking about in all of this, he illustrates with these bookends to this passage, and it's this word vindication. He's really trying to tell minority Christians living in the midst of suffering, that you ultimately one day will be vindicated for your faith in Christ. And so also this applies to us today. We may not be in that kind of minority like they were back in the first century, but to tell you the truth, if we are serious about confessing Christ and living in a full-throated manner for Him, putting both things completely in the kingdom of God, not one foot in the kingdom of this world and one foot in the kingdom of God, but both feet in the kingdom of God. If you're committed to that, you increasingly will be part of a small minority in America today. 
That's the reality. I'm not talking about cultural Christianity. You can be part of the majority of cultural Christianity. Where you say some prayers before meals, and you go to church talk from time to time, and you talk about this a little bit, and talk about that, and you're relatively conservative and patriotic. I'm not talking about that. I'm talking about two feet in, full-fledged Christianity. If you go for that, you're going to be part of a small minority in America today, but you've got to hold on to these bookends in which Peter says, verse 18 and verse 22, for Christ also suffered once for sin, my sin, your sin, the righteous for the unrighteous, to bring you to God. He was put to death in the body, but he was made alive by the Spirit. He was resurrected over the grave. Then verse 22, Jesus has gone into heaven and is at God's right hand, along with angels, authorities, and powers in submission to him. It's saying ultimately there is vindication. In the end, what it's saying is Jesus wins. In the end, what it's saying is Jesus reigns. In the end, what it's saying is whether you're a small minority or part of a larger Christian population, either way, if you identify yourself with Christ, you also will be around that throne room of grace and you win too. Ultimately, you also will be vindicated along with Christ. That's the promise from these verses. Now, here's the difference that makes for us today. Here's the so what, as you look at chapter 4, verse 1. It says, therefore, because of all that that I just said, therefore, since Christ suffered in his body, the righteous one for us in our unrighteousness, for us in our sins, he suffered for us in his body, Therefore, arm yourself also with the same attitude, because whoever suffers in the body is done with sin. Okay, so here the Bible says, arm yourself. Some of you are like, amen. Oh yeah, I'm into that. Arm yourself. Mm. Mission accomplished, right? All right, maybe not. <laughs> That's not what it's talking about, is it? No, it's saying arm yourself with the mindset of Christ. Arm yourself with the mindset of Christ, the mind that was in Christ. You want to arm yourself with that. You say, well, what, what's, the, well, what's the mindset of Christ? Look back at Philippians chapter 2, and you see this very famous passage, one of the early creed statements that communicates this basic Christian doctrine about the incarnation of Christ and the mind of Christ is also to be our mind as we are followers of Christ. And so this is Philippians 2. Do nothing out of selfish ambition or vain conceit, but in humility consider others above yourselves. Each of you should look out not only for your own interests, but also you should look out for the interests of others. Each of you should take on the mindset of Jesus Christ Take on the mind of Jesus, who, being in very nature God, did not consider equality with God something to be grasped, but made himself nothing. Taking on the very nature of a servant and being found in human likeness, he humbled himself even to the point of death, even death on the cross. He emptied himself to the point of nothingness for you. That's the mind of Christ. Okay? It's, it's, this, it's this beautiful mind of humility, of service, of sacrifice. That I look out not for my own interests, but for the interests of others, and I'll do that throughout my life, even to the point of death. Are you with 
us this way, and in response, we, we love others as well. We sacrifice for others as well. We live this way. We live this way. And you're to arm yourself with this attitude, which is in Christ Jesus. It, it kind of um, asks this question, it raises questions off of me, oh, what, what would that look like if someone had the mind of Christ? Or, or maybe you'd ask the question, how does someone know that they're a Christian? Or, uh, of course, I from as good as a pastor is, um, how can you tell for sure that someone is a Christian? That's a question I get a lot. Well, you, you can't really tell based on outward appearances. Like, uh, you can't look for a dot, a little jewel in the middle of the forehead, the 30 seconds. You can't look for a turban on the head, the 30 seconds. You can't look for a parasol or some scrolls in somebody's hair curls. Those are already taken. Those are already spoken for. You can't look for someone riding a bicycle with a little button-down t-shirt and a small tie. That's already taken. Those are all taken. You, you won't even know based on whether someone prays before dinner time. You won't even know based on whether someone comes to church. That's not how you know. The way you know that someone is a Christian is if they have the mind of Christ, the mindset of Christ, as demonstrated by two things, is what Jesus says. You know it by the way they live, and you know it by the way they love. And what Peter is telling us here is we are to arm ourselves with the mindset of Christ, which is the way we live and the way we love. Look at Matthew chapter 7, verses 17 and 20. These are the words of Jesus, both of these indicators. Jesus says, Every good tree bears good fruit, but a bad tree bears bad fruit. Thus by their fruit you will... I heard a question of anger. You'll recognize them the beautiful fruit of their lives, by their unique lifestyle, by the fact that they're set apart in the way that they live, by the fact that they're able to walk with Christ rather than drift with the crowd, by the fact that they know that they're forgiven by God, and that motivates them to forgive others. And then by the way you love. Jesus said this in John chapter 13, in fact, let's read this out loud, up in the screen together, so I'm not the only one talking today. Would you please join me? John 13, verses 34 and 35. Let's read this together, both the auditorium and the venue. A new command I give you, love one another. As I have loved you, so you must love one another. By this, everyone will know that you are my disciples if you, by the way you live and by the way you love. Here's the armor that we put on. It's the way we live for Christ, and the way it's the way we love others for Christ. The armor is the way we live and the way that we love. You can tell someone's a Christian. The world is supposed to be able to tell that we are Christians by these two indicators: the way we live and the way we love. Especially so in the pressure cooker, isn't it? Because in the pressure cooker, people stop living like Christ. And in the pressure cooker, people stop loving like Christ. They start agitating against each other. They start rebelling against God oftentimes when in the pressure cooker. But let me tell you a secret. Every New Testament letter, every one, 
is written against the backdrop of suffering. Let that sink in. Every New Testament letter is written against the backdrop of suffering in a pressure cooker that is worse than ours. It's simply anticipated. We're in the pressure cooker now. These first century Christians were in the pressure cooker, and so Peter's writing to them to remind them that things are really rough right now, but because narrow is the emperor over us, things are about to get rougher for us first century Christians. And he's preparing them throughout this letter to, re- to remember that the difficulties are coming their way via insults and marginalization and perhaps loss of physical health and certainly um, even the possibility of loss of life. Remember, a few short years after this, that Nero decided to blame Christians for burning the city of Rome down, which Christians did not do. Nero did, and it fell back upon him, and so he blamed Christians, and the next thing that he does, he starts turning Christians into Roman candles, dipping them in wax and killing them. And he's reminding these Christians that suffering is going to come, sometimes all the way to death. And yet they won, even in death, they were vindicated. If you know that you belong to Christ, so there's no fear in death. And I'm so shocked by the way Christians fear death. Seriously. I'm not talking about coronavirus. I'm not talking about that. The last 15 years, I couldn't believe it. As a pastor, 15 years, I've seen like this growing fear of death. I think it's because we've become so wealthy and so healthy and so comfortable. I'm not sure why it is, but I see a growing fear in death in Christians. And one of the greatest promises of the Scripture is we need to have any fear in death. Because what is secure for us is the promise of vindication in the end that heaven is ours. This world, we're just passing through. And so there's no need for us to fear death. That gives us strength in the pressure cooker that we're living in today. I to a pastor last week and he tells me that he's regularly been meditating on death. So he's regularly been meditating on eternity. Just imagining what eternity what would look like. Reading Revelation, reading other passages of Scripture, 1 Corinthians 2, reading um, John 14 and 15, and reminding himself, this is the beauty of heaven for me. And meditating on that, such that his fear of death would be diminished. Christians have no fear in death. For us to arm ourselves, the attitude of Christ is to stand strong with conviction and compassion in the midst of whatever suffering that we might feel we might go through even as Christ suffered for us. It means, let me just remind you what First Peter's been talking about these previous weeks. It means that when we're insulted, we don't trade insults. When people do evil to us, we don't give evil in return. We give blessing instead. It means when someone's harsh to us, we bless them. When we have a harsh boss, an inconsiderate boss, we find ways to bless and serve our boss. It means when somebody's passive, aggressive to you, you look for ways to bless them instead. It means when somebody gives you the silent treatment, you give them a big, cutesy smile and say, how are you doing today? It means you don't fight against your spouse, you fight for your spouse. It, it, it means that we are different. It means somebody hits you and you say, oh, Vengeance is mine, says the Lord. I will repay, says God. I will trust in Him, and 
fighting here. Verse 2 of chapter 4. Getting back over there. As a result of all this, because Christ suffered in His body for you, because you're arming yourself with the same attitude that Christ had, as a result of all this, they do not live the rest of their earthly lives for evil human desires, but rather for the will of God. For you have spent enough time in the past doing what pagans choose to do, living in debauchery, lust, drunkenness, orgies, carousing, and detestable idolatry. They are surprised, outsiders are surprised, that you do not join them in their reckless, wild living, and they heap abuse on you. They're surprised by it, and they heap abuse, they slander you. But they will have to give an account to him who is able and ready to judge the living and the dead. What Peter is saying is, this is what you used to be, but you are lost, and you're not this anymore. You're a different kind of person now, living to who you are now. And many of us would find ourselves in those vice lists that I just read. And others of us would not find ourselves in our past in those vice lists. But that's okay, you're not off the hook. There's plenty of vice lists in the New Testament. And I guarantee you, you find yourself in at least one of them. Probably many of them. If we are honest, we realize these describe who we were. But Peter's saying, leave your past in the past. And move forward today with Christ, who is with you and for you, living as he would live. And friends are going to be surprised that you live the way you used to live. And when they're surprised, they might gossip about you. They might insult you. They might slander you. They might try to undermine your reputation. And as they do, you're not surprised. You simply pray to God and you ask God for help dealing with that. You express it. You preach the gospel to yourself. God, please help me remind myself every day about the truth of the gospel through which I have life in you and I need not live off of the acceptance or the approval of other people and I prepare myself for what might be coming my way and God gives us power in the midst of whatever we might face. Now, let me just speak for a moment about this as it relates to verses 2 through 5, specifically for middle school, for high school, for college students, for young people in the room who might be struggling with these very vices that are listed here in this passage. I've been so encouraged over the past several weeks. There's been a bunch of young people who have come to me either during the week or after services here saying, I am trying to live for Christ, but it's so very difficult to do so in this culture here in Kearney, Nebraska, right now. And repeatedly start coming to me and saying, I'm the only one. I'm the only one in my friendship group that wants to go after Christ. And it's hard. Listen, if that's you, know this. There is no temptation that comes to you which is not common to everyone else in this room, including me. Know this. Temptations you're facing are not new to you. They're definitely as old as me. When I was probably 21 years old, I had been a Christian for about five minutes. And I came back from college during the summer break, and I went to hang out with some of the same old friends that I hung out with in high school. And for the purpose of my testimony, I'll just call them Jim and Tim. So I'm hanging out with Jim and Tim, and since I saw them last, I had a pretty significant 
conversion experience to Christ, in which I realized that Jesus forgave me both from first to last of all my failures, both in my previous life. And some of you may wish for a pastor who doesn't have a checkered, a checkered past. And if you wish for a pastor who doesn't have a checkered past, you'll have to go somewhere else. Because I have a checkered past. You're right, brother. Everybody does. We all do. And I haven't been good all my little life. And yet Jesus forgave me from first to last. And when I realized that Jesus would forgive me from first to last, all the things that I've failed, and the vices on that list and other lists too, I couldn't believe that he would do that for me. He would die for me. And so I got lit up for Christ at that stage. And I'm back hanging out with Jim and Tim and um, spent some time with them. And that evening where we decided to go up on the rooftop and just watch the sunset. Beautiful night, beautiful sunset. Well, that's in Colorado. Beautiful sunset there, much like what we have here. And I'm looking to the west, watching that sunset, and sure enough, Jim pulls a baggie out of his pocket. And you know what's in that baggie. And he starts to roll a couple joints. And I am left with the decision in that moment that I had to think about prior to that moment. What am I going to do when Jim or Tim pulls out the baggie? What am I going to do in that moment? You've got to think about it ahead of time. And so I said to him, no, I'm not interested. I don't want any of that. He said, Adrian, what's happened to you? You're so square now. You're such a wimp. You've gotten so soft. But what was going on with you? You're no fun to be with anymore. And the ridicule and the insult. And there I am up on a rooftop where my friends are lighting it up. And I'm feeling like marginalized over the corner. We fall asleep. The next morning, wake up, and we go to the grocery store. And I go to the grocery store with Jim. And in the grocery store, we go to get breakfast, a dozen donuts, and a gallon of milk. And I'm moving toward the cashier to pay for the donuts and the milk, and Jim decides to move toward the exit. And I'm looking at he's walking toward the exit, and I say, Jim, over here, the cashier's over here. Say, shut up, A, come with me. Shut up, A, come with me. What? You're going to steal donuts and milk? I'll give you ten bucks. We're good. And he said, no, I, we're going this way. So he goes, and I stupidly follow him, and I get into the car with him, and we go back to the house, which I never should have done, and today I would have just waited and got a taxi or something. Uber. Um, but I go with him to his house, and they break out the donuts and the milk, and they offer it to me, and I say, no thanks. And you know how hard it is to say no to a donut, right? But I am not going to eat your stolen goods. Ridicule. Slander, marginalization. You're a wimp. And I have to decide in that moment am I going to stand with Christ? Or am I going to drift with the crowd? And we're going to have those moments. Every one of us, on multiple occasions, we're going to have those moments. Am I going to stand with Christ? Or am I going to drift with the crowd that's so much easier? So what I had to do was stand alone for a while and just pray, God, would you please bring me a couple other friends that would be serious about walking the same direction because the Christian life is too difficult to do on our own. We need it in community. And eventually, over the course of some time, God brought me a couple friends. Look at verse 2 again. We need to personalize this passage. It says this. This is how it's written if you were to personalize it. I... Do not live the rest of my earthly life 
for my evil human desires, but rather I live for the will of God. Friends, this is it. It's the daily choice to be all in for Christ and to live for the will of God in all that He gives us. Not to live for my evil human desires, not to live for other people's approval, enough of approval from people. Resist the herd mentality and live for God. You see, the biblical principle is this faithfulness rather than acceptance is the true virtue. Faithfulness to the will of God. All I want is the will of God for my life. God, I pray for you. I just want your will and nothing else but for my life. I don't need acceptance ultimately but from people if I have your acceptance of God. I need your approval of God. I want to live for the will of God. And we pray for that and we live into that. And we remember, I pray the young people in the room will remember even today, as you pray for that, vindication someday gives us hope through suffering today. And the truth is, I felt suffering when I lost my friends, Tim and Jim. It was a loss. But one day, Christ vindicated. And today, He's given me the muscle of perseverance to be able to stand for Him and stand for what is good, regardless of what anyone else does. You grow that muscle of endurance and perseverance as you take it. You recognize now that one day you will be vindicated. Verse 5 says this, and then we'll close. They will have to give an account to him who is ready to judge the living and the dead. God's going to make everyone give an account to him. Every one of us, everyone watching the venue, everyone watching the line, everyone we know will one day give an account to God. And he will judge the living and the dead. And he will judge right. As I wrap up on this morning, I wonder if you would close your eyes for just a moment and you would imagine with me, imagine with me that you are a high school student here in 2020. Just close your eyes if you're willing and imagine with me that you're a high school student and what this passage would say to you. Imagine you're a teenager where the majority of high schoolers drink alcohol even to the point of drunkenness on a somewhat regular basis. Many of the students you know use pot and other drugs, and they go to teenagers in bed in a casual manner. Some marginalize other students based on their clothes and whether they go to church or not. And imagine that you're thinking about this teenager. Imagine you're that teenager. You know who does these things and who doesn't do these things. And you know that if you choose to do these things, you oftentimes will be marginalized up in the crowd. To some degree, you know that you will not be accepted because you refuse to go along with these. You know even indeed that most adults generally see this as normal teenage behavior. It's just boys being boys and just girls being girls. And as a teenager, this is what you are up against every day. Peter's message says something to you about your situation. It says, God knows how difficult it is to fight the herd mentality all around you. And God knows how easy it is to drift in with the crowd. 
And your God knows that you're going to need special endurance, special courage to persevere. And God knows that that courage will result in character growth that is far bigger than the temporary pleasure of enjoying all these worldly goods. God knows that even though you might lose some of the crowd, He will be strong for you. He promises to vindicate you someday. And friends, if you're there, if you're a high schooler in that spot, if you're a middle schooler in that spot, if you're a college student in that spot, if you're a 60-year-old today in that spot, you need to focus on these two things. When you live like Jesus and when you love like Jesus, your life will ultimately be more satisfying than the crowd. Maybe not immediately, but over time it will be more satisfying. And then you have to remember that one day your God will vindicate you as you choose to stand for Him, even opposed to the crowd. Your God loves you. And He will vindicate His children. Both for today and for eternity. So, Father, we need you. We need you. It sucks the wind out of us when we are slandered. It knocks us to the ground when we are insulted. Feels like an uppercut when we are marginalized. It's so painful to stand alone. But God, we just say to you, we want your will. Walking with the crowd does nothing for us, and it does nothing for your kingdom. And so we ask that you would give us courage to do your will and yours alone. Help us to live like Jesus. To love like Jesus and to trust you to vindicate us in the end. We'll be careful to give you all glory in Christ.